Salut, bonjour et bienvenue à Bordeaux. Hello and welcome to Bordeaux. This is City Breaks Bordeaux episode 2. I'm Marion Jones and I've planned for this episode a tour of the centre, a walk around, an orientation trip, if you will. A chance to get our bearings and see most of the main sites in the centre of the city, all in one walk, which will take perhaps an hour. A bit longer if you keep stopping to take photos and drink coffee and whatnot. And why wouldn't you do both those things? I'm thinking of it as a way to get to know the city centre better, to see a little bit of some of the places that we'll be coming back to in future episodes. An actual walk if you're in the position to do it, or if not then, a metaphorical walk. If you are actually going to try it out, I suggest you start at the tourist office and get a map. I'll be referring to street names, but not absolutely blow by blow exactly where you need to turn right and left. So a map will be handy. And while you're there, you might consider getting a Bordeaux Pass, which is a combined ticket for transport and entry into various places. May well be worth considering if you're going to do lots of the things for which it'll give you discounts. So then, once armed with a map, make your way to the Girondin Monument, which is very close to the tourist office, at the western end of that vast open space on the map called the Esplanade des Cancans. The monument is definitely one of those must-see places in the city, so it's as good a place as any to start. Massive, 43 metres high, quite a complicated monument with lots of bits and pieces to it, but the general story is that it was built in the 19th century, right at the end, starting in 1894, to pay homage to a group of people who came from this area and became known as the Girondins. The Gironde is the name of the area just around Bordeaux. A number of politicians from there were part of the French Revolution. They were anti-monarchists, quite happy to see the demise of Louis XVI and the setting up of the National Convention and the Assemblée Nationale. But After that point, as is so often the way with revolutions, factions arose, and they were less radical than some of the other groups. This was really the beginning of the period known as the Reign of Terror, when one Maximilien Robespierre wanted to force through the aftermath of the revolution in ever more violent ways, and the Girondins opposed that. Result, in the end, 22 of them were rounded up, accused of being against the revolution, and executed. So really they came to be seen as martyrs. Yes, they had wanted democracy and liberty for the French nation, but they'd also fought against an excess of terror and violence. And here we have the monument to them. A huge fountain, a large central column, the Statue of Liberty, who else, on top, breaking her chains, and a whole collection of other pools and statues, think marble and bronze. There are revolutionary figures, there are those who represented peace, there are sculptures representing republican values. I found a description of it in a French guidebook as being une leçon civique au service de la République. So a lesson in citizenship, if you will, as to the values of the Republic. You'll find statues that represent things like strength and work and military service, education, Perhaps you'll just take away a memory of it as an iconic monument, a good place for photos, and an excellent place to cool down in the summer. Whatever you make of it, it's definitely central to the history of Bordeaux. So, once you've finished with that, go along the Cours du 30 Juillet, 
past the tourist office on your left and keep a lookout for an amazing building that has been described as looking like the stem of a boat. I've also seen it described as being a bit like the Flatiron Building in New York because this building, the Maison Gobineau, is an established Bordeaux institution. It's been a cinema in the past. It was the place where the car company Citron set up their first branch in Bordeaux. But since 1948, it has been, what it still is today, the home to the Bordeaux Wine Council, or, to give them their French title, Le Conseil Interprofessionnel du Vin de Bordeaux. I'll be coming back to it in the wine episode, but for the moment, just think, courses, a wine bar, a place where everything about Bordeaux to do with wine comes together. Just past that, you'll find the road opens out into a lively square. Place de la Comédie, it's called. And that's because comédie does mean comedy, but it also means drama. And this is the site of another venerable Bordeaux institution, the Grand Théâtre. Literally the big theatre. Perhaps Grand Theatre would be a better translation. An absolute cultural hub, not just for Bordeaux, but really for the southwest of France. A previous theatre on this site burned down, and in the late 1700s, the king himself decided that a new grand theatre should be built here. It has a very grand setting, a wide space outside, where you can imagine horse-drawn carriages arriving and depositing theatre-goers and clip-clopping away. Above the portico on the grand facade, twelve Corinthian columns supporting an ornate balustrade, twelve stone statues of muses and goddesses and whatnot, And when you go inside, you will find an equally superb interior. Massive, elegant staircase, said to have been the inspiration for the one built at the Opera Garnier in Paris, and decorated in sumptuous blue, white and gold, those being the colours of royalty. This is all quite ironic, because the revolution came not that many years after the theatre was opened. It was designed for beauty and elegance, yes, but also for perfect acoustics. So there's a circular cupola in the main auditorium. There are 18th century frescoes which have been fairly newly restored. All in all, it's quite a theatre, although it has played other roles in French history too. For example, in 1871, just after the defeat by the Germans, the French government left Paris and came to Bordeaux. And it was here in the theatre where they held their Assemblée Nationale. But there's of course a long, long history of theatre plays, operas, concerts. The very first one was performed in 1780, a production of something called Atelier by Racine. Racine is sort of half a French Shakespeare, the half who wrote the tragedies, if you like, the other half being Moliere, who wrote the comedies. But today it's mainly a musical venue, largely for opera. I had a look at the current programme, all sorts of things, Donizetti, Poulon, Gershwin's Porgy and Bess, but lots of things that weren't opera too, so dance performances, orchestral music, chamber music, piano recitals, choir performances, jazz, world music, really almost everything you can think of. It's probably France's grandest provincial theatre and a great employer of artists. Over a 100 musicians in the Bordeaux National Orchestra, nearly 40 dancers in the ballet company, 30 or 40 singers in the Bordeaux National Opera Choir, and a really varied programme which invites guest artists, so international conductors or well-known soloists, to join them. There are a couple of ways to get inside the Grand Théâtre. 
the most obvious one being, of course, have a look at the programme and get some tickets. But they do guided visits too. You can organise those through the tourist office. And for €10 or so, a guide will take you all around, inside and outside, and tell you the history. So then, as far as our tour goes, you could make next for the Place Péberlon, which is a few minutes' walk away from the theatre. You could hop on a tram just outside the theatre, actually. I think it's Tram B, and go a couple of stops. Or, in the nature of exploring, perhaps it's nicer to walk. Place Péberlon, named after a former bishop of Bordeaux, is very much a central hub of the city. The cathedral's there for a start, but so are lots of big civic buildings, the town hall, the courts, a city archives building. It's huge, it's very attractive, it's framed by cafes and restaurants, so a very nice place to linger. You can go inside the town hall if you want to have a look around there, and certainly I would definitely recommend a visit inside the cathedral. La Cathédrale Saint-André, St Andrew's Cathedral begun in the 12th century, one of those buildings that's had lots of bits added to it as time went on, but the early part is still visible, the Romanesque part of the cathedral, and it's interesting for all the usual reasons that old cathedrals are interesting, but particularly for one event which took place there on the 25th of July 1137, and that was the marriage of Eleanor, Duchess of Aquitaine, to King Louis VII. If you seek out the older part of the cathedral, it's the western end, you'll soon see that it does look much older than the rest, and you will then be standing in the very building where this wedding took place. It doesn't look today exactly as it would have done then, because it would have been decorated with sculptures painted in very bright colours. You can see traces of the frescoes which were there on the walls, even still today, and you can find halfway down on the right-hand side the royal portal which is decorated above with three statues, one of Eleanor, one of Louis, and one of the bishop who married them. And just to give a flavour of this event, here's a quotation from a book called Eleanor of Aquitaine by Alison Weir. Quote, On Sunday the 25th of July, 1137, Eleanor and Louis were married in the cathedral of Saint-André in Bordeaux. The Archbishop of Bordeaux officiated, and the bride wore a rich gown of scarlet. Almost a thousand guests attended. Not even Seneca could have fully described the variety of meats and rare delicacies that were there, nor the richness and variety of the presents and the pomp paraded for these nuptials. So, at the very least, wedding of the century. The marriage lasted 15 years, until 1152, when the Pope was persuaded to annul it, and only two months after that, Eleanor remarried, this time Henry Plantagenet future Henry II of England. I'm going to talk a lot more about Eleanor in the next episode, actually. So for the moment, just a few more points of interest about the cathedral. It was all through the medieval period and still today a stopping point on the pilgrim's route to Santiago de Compostela. There were three churches mentioned in that context. I'll come back to those in another episode as well. Another event which would have seemed absolutely momentous at the time took place in 1305, when the Bishop of Bordeaux was anointed Pope here. In the 1440s, the Pays Berlin Tower was added. That's the bell tower, which stands just next to the cathedral. And in 1615, another royal wedding. This time, Louis XIII and his bride, Anne of Austria, who were both, I believe, aged 14 at the time. 
Perhaps, unsurprisingly, there was a long period before they had any children, but when they did eventually produce a son, he was the baby who grew up to be, yes, you've guessed it, Louis Fourteenth. In common with so many other French cathedrals and churches, a very turbulent time during the Revolution, there was a fire in 1787, and by 1793, when the new regime was firmly in place, the cathedral was no longer used as a church at all, but as a storage place for hay. When you finish looking round the cathedral, definitely worth going next door to the tower as well. I think you have to book in advance to be allowed to climb that. But it's definitely worth it for the views that you'll get from the top. It was built in the 15th century as a bell tower, although I did read that they didn't actually get round to putting any bells in it until the 19th century. And it was named after the bishop at the time, one P. Berlant, who did a lot for Bordeaux. He founded the university and he was the patron of this building. It is certainly a magnificent edifice, 233 steps up to the top, from where you will get what my French guidebook described as un panorama unique. Plus there is a beautiful golden statue up there, Our Lady of Aquitaine, gazing out over the Médoc countryside, where Monsieur P. Berlon, who paid for the tower, was born. To continue our tour from this square, I would suggest finding the Cours Pasteur and making your way down to the Musée d'Aquitaine, which you'll find on the left-hand side. Wonderful building, which I'll be coming back to in a number of episodes. It's the city's museum. A very grand frontage. It was a university building, I think, before it became a museum. And fittingly, along the front, a range of statues of famous people. We're not going in today, we're going past, but let me just mention that inside you will find the history of Bordeaux and the region from prehistory right up until the present day. There are all sorts of really interesting sections. I'd highlight particularly the one on the Roman Bordeaux. There's a good section on the Middle Ages. You can see there, for example, the beautiful plaster mould of the model which was made for the tomb of Eleanor of Aquitaine. There's also the cenotaph of one of Bordeaux's most famous citizens, the writer Michel de Montaigne, and a whole room devoted to him and his work. There's an excellent display on Bordeaux as a trading city, and particularly focusing on the Atlantic trade and the slavery, and also detailed displays on the vineyards in the Gironde, and the wine trade which has been at the root of so much of the city's prosperity. I'll be coming back to it in several episodes. But for the moment, I'd suggest turning left just past the museum into Cours Victor Hugo. Because if you walk down there, after five minutes or so, you will have on your left one of the most photographable buildings in the whole of Bordeaux, namely the Grosse Cloche. Grosse Cloche, if you don't speak French, means big bell. And that is indeed what it is. That is to say, it's a beautiful medieval tower. Think elegant archway little turrets on top surrounding the bell, a stunning 18th century clock on the façade. This beautiful building has been an emblem of the city. It's been on the coat of arms ever since the Middle Ages. It is, in fact, the only one of the medieval gates to the city which is still there. And I'll be coming back to it in the next episode. For the moment, though, just to note, the bell isn't medieval. That was cast in 1775. If you're following on foot, this is the point where I suggest you get your map out because what I think would be good to do now is to find your way through the Grosse Cloche and then use the map to navigate your way towards the river, making sure that you go past the Porte de Caillot on the route that you take. 
Kayu, strange name, C-A-I-L-H-A-U. I did try and find out why it's called that. The best explanation I came up with was probably something to do with being named after a family living there at the time. Another stunning entrance gate to the city, built later than the Grosse Cloche, dating from 1493-94 or thereabouts, and constructed to be the main entrance to the city from the River Garonne. The city walls led from it in both directions, and it was carefully situated just near the palace which was there at the time, but is no longer there, and so it was called also La Porte du Palais, so the palace gate. Another defensive measure, if you were going to try and approach Bordeaux from the river, you'd have the portcullis to deal with. If you look at the arrow slits on the building, you can imagine that any would-be invaders were being shot at. But it was more than just for defence, it was also built in triumph. In the year 1495, so as the tower was being constructed, was a decisive year for the French, because it was when their king, Charles VIII, had a victory in Italy at the Battle of Fornovo, just outside Naples, which allowed him to bring French troops home in safety. And so, of course, he wanted this put up partly as a triumphal arch to recognise his achievements. Hence the elegant turrets, the mullioned windows, the statue of him at the battle, and the royal coat of arms, all to be seen on the façade. You can go inside and see an exhibition on how it was built, and from there too, magnificent views over the river and the bridges, and also over the rooftops surrounding the tower. A bit further along the quay from there, so along the road along the river, you will come to a site which is probably the most photographed in the whole of the city, namely the Place de la Bourse and the Miroir d'Eau. So, to take the square first, which will be on your left, it was begun in 1730, took 20, 25 years to build, and was intended right from the start to be a real showplace of, seen from that perspective anyway, modern Bordeaux. So, away with the medieval, with the tiny little streets, let's build a magnificent open square. A square with three sides, because the fourth one would be provided by the River Garonne, just opposite. Somewhere that would show the city looking outwards to the river and the world beyond, and would allow travellers arriving by river to see, first of all, the most beautiful vista of Bordeaux. It was all designed by Louis XV's first architect, I don't know how many he had, and this man, one Jacques Gabriel, thought big. When he saw the site, he said, quote, Never before have I beheld so charming a vista, and a spectacle so wondrous. Here, he continued, more than any other place, should something be built for posterity. I think we can agree he managed that. A visitor who came in 1785, one Madame de la Roche, was blown away too. She particularly admired the statue of Louis XV, set up in the middle of the square. And no, it's not there today, because of course the revolution did away with him. But she liked the way he, quote, seemed to contemplate the Garonne full of trading ships. So again, the idea that here was being celebrated Bordeaux's wonderful maritime setting. When you stood here, wrote Madame La Roche, you could contemplate, quote, what nature has done for this city. But also, as she went on to write, you could contemplate, quote, what the genius and hard work of man has done for it too. And still today, it's the combination of the riverside setting and the beautiful architecture which makes the Place de la Bourse so stunning. So, if you stand with your back to the river, 
What you'll see is two main buildings, symmetrical, curving round in a semicircle, and separated by a central pavilion. One of them was originally the Hôtel des Fermes, built to house the king's tax collectors and a vast customs hall, so very linked to the river and the trading. And on the other side then, the Palais de la Bourse, so the stock exchange. It really is classical architecture, perfect symmetry, glorious decorations, so think sculpted pediments, little bell towers, arches all along the ground floor, elegant balustrades along the next floor up, decorated with those mascarons, those stone carvings often of faces that you see so many of in Bordeaux. And in the middle of the square, the fountain, no longer of Louis XV, but these days, since 1869 in fact, a fountain of the Three Graces. Actually, even that's not the full story, because when Louis XV was taken down, he was replaced a few years later by Napoleon. But somehow that was thought better of too, and now we have the much more elegant Three Graces. And I have yet to mention the other totally stunning thing about this square, and that is the miroir d'eau, or water mirror, literally. If you've seen any photographs of Bordeaux, you will almost certainly have seen one of here, very possibly lit up gorgeously at night. So, to appreciate it, you need to stand well back towards the river, on the other side of the water mirror. You might reflect that although it's iconic Bordeaux today, it's only actually been there since, I think it was 2006, when the quayside was redeveloped. So, what actually is it? The mirror itself is made of granite slabs embedded in the ground, covered in about two centimetres of water, which lies very flat and still, and then, of course, reflects the beautiful grandeur of the buildings opposite, which I've just been describing. It is the largest water mirror in the world, almost 3,500 square metres in surface area, and 8,000 cubic metres of reservoir underground feeding it. There are also vapour jets all over it, which spray mist about every 23 minutes, creating an atmospheric mist to look through, and also being nice and cooling in the very hot weather. It's only switched on in the summer, April to October, but the visual aspect works all year round, and I'm sure you, like everybody else, would want to stand in just the right spot and get one of those glorious photographs showing the two curved buildings on Place de la Bourse reflected perfectly in the water of the Miroir d'eau. If you keep walking along the quay, you will pass lots more elegant 18th century facades on your left, and you'll have, of course, the river on your right. You can do some musing about taking a whole morning or afternoon to walk up and down it, or perhaps to hire bikes. But before too long, turn left into the Esplanade des Quinquants, which will be very obvious on your map, and which you can't fail to spot because of its huge size. One of the guidebooks I consulted described it as an improbable desert at the heart of the city. I think it's the largest square in the whole of Europe. And yes, it does seem unlikely to find such a quantity of vast open space in the heart of a busy city like Bordeaux. How did this come about? It was just a part of the city until the 15th century when Charles VII thought of another use for it. He was the one, you may remember, who took back the city of Bordeaux from the English, who'd been there for nearly 300 years. He liked being in charge. He very much wanted to keep it that way and keep the English away. So, of course, he decided to build a defensive chateau. The Chateau Trompette, it was called. 
this move wasn't hugely popular with the people of Bordeaux because he had to demolish quite a lot of their city to make room for it. But to build it he did, it was there for several hundred years until eventually, in the 18th century, it was demolished to make more space. And then it was decided that the space was a good thing to have, so it's remained there to this day and comes into its own whenever Bordeaux needs wide open spaces for a visiting fair or circus, for sporting events, for concerts, for all sorts of things. It is also a transport hub. If you go out and about, particularly out of the city, you will certainly find yourself catching or changing trams at Plastic Incons. It does have some monuments. At the river end, there are two large statues which look like lighthouses, another nod to the city's maritime history. Along its length, you'll find statues of two of Bordeaux's best-known writers, Montaigne, whom I've mentioned, and Montesquieu, whom I haven't yet, but they're both coming in a future episode. And then right at the other end, you are back at the Monument aux Girondins, so the monument to the Girondins, where we started our tour. So that's my version of a look round which takes in a lot of the best-known sites. There are, of course, lots of places I haven't mentioned, and I might just give a nod to two or three of them now. So the Place du Parlement, or Parliament Square in English, definitely don't miss that. It's actually only a few minutes' walk from the Place des Quincons, or indeed the Place de la Bourse, and it's a beautiful little square, built in 1754, lined with those splendid facades that they were so good at in the 18th century, a lovely fountain in the middle, one of those pretty squares where a lot of restaurants are to be found, and you can have a nice time wandering about, choosing what and where you'd like to eat. It's got quite a history. It was originally created as the Place du Marché Royal, so the Royal Market Square. Needless to say, the revolution put paid to that, and it was hastily renamed as, you could probably guess, Place de la Liberté, Liberty Square, or Freedom Square. But, in fact, renamed again, Place du Parlement, in honour, I think, of the fact that the Parliament wasn't the institution set up after the Revolution. Maybe there were quite enough Place de la Liberté all over France to be going on with, so it was decided to call this one Place du Parlement. In fact, if you walk round and look closely, you will find that all three names are up there somewhere on the buildings, a sort of memory of all the things it used to be. Another place I would definitely head for at some point, although it's slightly further away than the Place du Parlement, and that's the Jardin Public, the city's main park. An absolute haven of grass and trees and flowers and history. It's got an artificial lake, it's got little bridges, there are centuries-old trees, plenty of swans and ducks, little pathways crisscrossing to go exploring, and it's surrounded by some stately 18th-century buildings more honey-coloured mansions, one of which is the Natural History Museum. One area of the park is given over to a botanical garden, free entry to that. There's a children's playground and one of those very French guignol guérins, so puppet shows. The park too is dotted with statues, so you may come across, for example, a statue of Rosa Bonheur, the 19th century artist, who was born in Bordeaux but made her name really in Paris or perhaps one of that very Bordeaux-based author from the early 20th century, François Mauriac. There's a bar, restaurant, café too, and if you're thinking that this is all sounding like a very idyllic park, you may not be surprised to hear that it's one of those labelled as a Jardin Remarquable de France, so literally a remarkable French garden. 
an accolade saying that this has got some history to it and it's a, a garden definitely very much worth visiting. There are also a couple of other major churches in Bordeaux which I haven't mentioned yet, Saint-Seurin and Saint-Michel, both of which we'll be featuring in the next episode. So there we go then, an orientation walk around Bordeaux, which I hope you enjoyed and found interesting, whether you did it really or metaphorically. Just a quick reminder before I finish that City Breaks podcasts are coming out on a monthly basis at the moment, the first Wednesday night stroke Thursday of each month, because I am beavering away in the background, sprucing up the website. And this is perhaps a moment to just remind you about that. So for current episodes, including today's, a blog post will appear at the same time as the episode, a summary of what's been said, reading ideas where appropriate, links to all the places to visit which have been mentioned, and of course pictures. Do go and have a look. I'm hoping that you'll find it a really useful resource. And finally then, a brief mention of what's coming next, Bordeaux episode 3 of course, which is going to be an episode in two halves. I'm going to take two eras when there's lots to say about Bordeaux and devote half to each. The Roman times, when the city was known as Bordiglia, and medieval Bordeaux, that period when it was largely under English rule. I've rooted out some stories from both. I'm going to make mention of all the places in the city where you can find the Romans or medieval citizens of Bordeaux today and hopefully then give you more food for thought and ideas for visits. So then, without further ado, merci bien, thank you very much for listening, and until next time, goodbye. À la prochaine fois, au revoir.